Amen. Well, guys, I want to invite you to open up a copy of the Scriptures with us as we are continuing our study in the book of Proverbs, just entering into the last of the three chapters of the book of Proverbs. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along that way, you can do that. As we say each week, we have provided a booklet that has the whole chapter of Proverbs chapter 29 uh, that you can get there and, and be able to follow along in this. It would give you the ability to mark it up maybe more than you would normally do. Now, that's true for you in here, if you're, if you're wanting one of these, is each week we tell you, we know some of you are joining us online, and we're so glad you're there, but we do want to just give you that ability. We do just want to give you that uh, invitation that uh, if you're wanting to get a copy of the booklet, you can go to calvaryroswell.com, go under the messages, under tonight's message, uh, be able to grab that under Proverbs chapter 29, and be able to be in a space where God would meet us. Again, one of the things we do by providing the book is give you just that ability to mark it up. Now, you can use any fashion you want, but I'm going to use colors because that works good for the screen. But if you're looking for kind of a legend of, of the colors, it's there on page 12 of your booklet that kind of lets you know that we're going to look at green for things that are good, red for bad, blue for statements that are true, purple for God. We'll kind of, you know, circle or, or surround it for the key, and then the line after it will show the result, and hopefully that'll make sense. But again, however it would work, we would invite you uh, to be able to follow along with us and see those things uh, that God would have in store for us tonight. So let's go before him right now. Let's ask that he would meet us and he'd open up his word to us in a way that is personal and real and just touching our lives. Father, right now we come grateful, grateful to be able to do so, grateful to be able to step into this moment. God, would you just take your word and open it up to our hearts that those things which you would speak to us, those things that you would have in store for us, those things that you would be bringing into our lives, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us the ability to understand those things that uh, would be laid out to, you, to us by your Spirit. God, take your truth and, and meet us in just a significant and, and just practical and yet real way in our lives, growing us in your ways, growing us in the things that you would have in store for us. God, we're asking for that right now. We're trusting you as, as a God who is faithful, who is able, and we just simply bring this before you and, and, and believe that you are a God who is more than we could imagine in that. So help us now just to understand and see those things that you have in store for us. We ask for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us and seeing that crosses every path, a hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Years ago, I heard that poem, and there was just a, a sense of soberness that brought me to that reality. There really is true. And every life, there is a mark of, of either them moving towards God or their hearts hardening. In a fearful moment, there is a space of just warning against that, and that's exactly where we find ourselves beginning. Here in Proverbs 29, God just speaking wisdom into our lives, guiding us in ways that we would be able to see those things that he has in, for, in front of us. He says it this way, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. And it's a, it's a huge warning. It says, so here's this person that 
you know, God is trying to get a hold of, that, you know, is this picture of moving them and drawing them and, 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 and even rebuking, trying to correct, trying to draw back. And he says, okay, here's this one that instead of responding to that rebuke, finds himself being hardened, resisting, uh, resisting it, resisting all that would be there. And Proverbs just warns us. There's a dangerous place there because there's a place where there's no longer the opportunity to turn anymore. There's a place where you'll suddenly be destroyed and there's no way back. Uh, there's no remedy for that. There's no, there's no fix for that. It's one of those kind of moments that, again, I don't know where that lands for you. I don't know where it finds you, but it's a concerning moment. Obviously, for all of us, there ought to be a sense of like, okay, Lord, don't let that be me. Don't let me ever harden to the place that I would miss what you would have for me, you know, because it's possible. It's possible for those who would harden their heart and, you know, just be unsaved in that, but it's possible for believers. It's possible for children of God to, like the children of Israel in the Old Testament, get to the place that God says, that's it, you know, you, you can't have the blessing. You can't have the land. I was going to do, but I'm not. There's a, there's a moment there that says, you know, in the midst of this, to look on this and say there's a dangerous place of resistance. I, I find myself thinking about that, and I, I like the way it's given to us in the book of Romans, where it's reasoning with those who, who are so just resisting God. And he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? Our God is amazingly patient. He is an amazingly patient, good God. He is good in the midst of it, and yet that whole intention of his goodness is to bring people to repentance. The dangerous place is for the one that feels, oh, you know, I always have time. You know, I, I, I'll always, you know, you know, it's one of these days I'm going to do that. One of these days I'm going to, you know, I know, I know I'm convicted. I know I'm not doing the right thing. Uh, you know, but hey, you know, just not today. I'm not going to go there. You know, yeah, I should turn around from my sin. I should turn to Jesus. And yet what, what Paul warns us and what Proverbs warns us is that opportunity is not forever. There's a space in every heart where a heart hardens, where there is, is a place where there is no remedy, where there is no way back. You know, I don't even know where that lands this evening. I don't know if there's anyone in this room or joining us online or in our overflow that I just need to speak to as clearly as I can that in any way is treating God in that way, being in that space of like, you know, yeah, one of these days, you know, I'm gonna get serious. I'm not really serious now. And, uh, and yet kind of pushing into that place where resisting, resisting rebuke, resisting what he would have. And today I just warn you, uh, don't play with that. I mean, be that one that would say, okay, those things are scary. You know, turn away, draw back to God. Don't, don't let it be there. What a terrifying and yet very real place. Again, I, I, I know I probably think in ways that uh, not all do, but I just, I, I recognize it's true. In every life, there's a line we know not where. There's a, a mark that you would look and say, in some people, that's their last opportunity. That's the last opportunity they, they, they had hearing the gospel. From this point on, their heart will harden and they will never come back. There are moments to mark that and it's one of those moments that say, Lord, just rescue. Rescue before they get there. Turn hearts back to you. And even tonight, I know for some of us, our, our, our minds think of things, people that we love and care for and thinking, Lord, don't let it be them. Turn them now because there is this place uh, where there is no more remedy. It's just a good warning. Again, because we live in that day where the soft, uh, kind of loose, uh, untrue grace where people are like, oh, there's always time. There's always time. 
you know, God, you know, he'll let anybody. It's like, no, no, there is not always time. Uh, there is a hardening that happens that God will even harden. And so warning us away from that, it's a good kind of just challenge him again. I mean, obviously, he's jumping into this chapter. So he's like, wow, that was kind of a, a tough little beginning there, Jim. Well, it's because it's the verse. <laughs> that's kind of where we were. And yet it's one that's needing to be here. And so let us hear it. Well, leaving that, as we do in Proverbs, we switch subjects there in verse 2. And it takes us to a different thought. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. When someone who is doing the right thing is in power, whether that be in a nation, whether that be in a city, whether that be in a business, when, when someone who's doing the right thing and, and is truly being you know, governed by that, it just, it, it is, it's a blessing. It's one of those places of just recognizing it, even among those who you know, struggle with God, would recognize there's truth there when it's the other way. When somebody who's wicked, who is you know, abusive or doing wrong things or handling things wrongly, being led in the wrong way, it is a, it's just a place of a groan. And, and I love the way it just puts that because you could almost feel it. Here's what I know. Some of you, that's kind of how you feel about things in our world right now. You look at some things in leadership and places and you just find yourself looking at it and almost without even thinking so, almost imperceptibly, you groan. Like, oh, you know, just like, oh. Some of you have that in business right now. There's somebody that you're working for and you just like, oh. You know, when you, when you watch that happen, it's just one of those true statements that lets us know, yeah, that's the, the, the damage, that's the destruction of wickedness and the destruction of, of that which calls us to contrast it with the righteous and obviously in the midst of it, both a statement of truth, but honestly a place that would invite us into being those who would do right, that would be on the right side of it. May God grow us in that even now. Well, you can flip the page, verse 3 of, of chapter 29. Whoever loves wisdom makes his father rejoice, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. So loving wisdom. So in the midst of this doing the right thing, this place of Proverbs where it's inviting us to be those who love God's wisdom, who say, like, I want to know what God wants. I, I want to do those things that are there. That's being laid out to us, held out to us. This is when you see that, when you see someone who does that, it is this place of bringing uh, just joy to his father. It's one of those places of looking at that. And this is one of those statements that's been made a number of times in the book of Proverbs, if you've been with us. It'll be reiterated in the New Testament, in, in 3 John, where it says, you know, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in truth. And that's just an incredible thing. Uh, for some of you, it's, it's your joy right now. You know, you look on it and just say, yeah, I have, my kids are doing well, that's great. When it's not so much, though, it goes the other side. It's a tragic reality. And some of that is seen in, the, in just the, the opposite of this. He says, but a companion of harlots wastes his wealth. It's a little interesting nugget here just for you to kind of notice this. Proverbs is just one of these things that takes truths and compares them, especially here in this section of Proverbs where, you know, it divides the good. It says, well, here's good versus this is bad. This is righteous. This is wickedness. And sometimes even the comparisons are fascinating in depth. This is one of them because it's not a, a proverb that you would have looked at and said, hey, these are the exact opposites. On one side of this, we see someone who's doing the right thing, loves wisdom, and bringing joy to their family. And then, you know, that's almost put in a, in a, in a large way. Like, you could just look at that and think that is just massively true across many levels. But then he takes us to one example. 
of the opposite of this. Instead of just giving us the entire, it takes us into one example and looks at, you know, this one who is a companion of harlots that spends their life, you know, pursuing immorality, you know, just pouring that. It says that they just, they, they waste everything. They waste all their wealth. They waste everything that's there. In the, in the nature of the proverb, it's not exactly clear whether the wealth is that person's or the father's. If it's a comparison of the first verse, it's saying instead of being a, a joy to the family, it's as if it just depletes them of, of everything that's there, not just financially, but just the wealth of a soul, of, of, of the wealth that's there, and just the gutting uh, of, of watching a child not only do poorly, but having their whole life just sucked by, out, out by sin and living in a, in a place that is altogether d- just discouraging and, and just, just, just tough to walk through. And he, again, he just invites us to see it. He just invites us to see it, again, for us, longing that we would be the ones that would do so rightly. But also just in a way that, for me, when I, when I read these verses, it does a number of things. You know, being a parent, having, uh, being a, da- a parent of, of kids that sometimes have done well, sometimes have done poorly, it has been really helpful just to look at it and say, that is so true. That is so true. You know, when they're doing well, that's joy. When they're not, it's as if it just, just robs your soul. It just depletes everything that's out of there. And there's just power in just understanding uh, that that's not a place that you're alone in. It kind of meets me in a way that just his word is both validated and real, but draws us into life in the midst of it. Wherever that meets you tonight, may God do that in you and draw you to all that he has. Well, continuing, verse 4, we go back to dealing with the, the nature of a king or, or leaders. And it says, the king establishes the land by justice, but he who receives bribes overthrows it. So the king, he says, if he's going to do that and, and, and just be the one that leads in justice, much like we saw in verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, it says he, he establishes the land because he does what's right, because he handles it with justice, because there, when, when that's the way it works, when uh, the way the government or anything that's there flows that way, it's, it's a place that brings strength and brings in power. But, he says, the contrast is this, whoever receives bribes overthrows it. Whoever receives bribes, and it's just a simple and yet incredibly true statement. Uh, looking across the, the, the nations of the world, uh, numbers of people have looked at this proverb and said, boy, if you could just take this and you would know it's true. When you watch a culture uh, that instead of, you know, having judges or leaders, you know, being governed by laws or right, when it's, who do you pay off? How much is it going to cost me? How much is it going to cost me to get, you know, this go through? How much, you know, when, 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 when the officials can be, you know, bribed off and when they're looking for that, it becomes something that not only is destructive, it, it undermines everything. It is this place that overthrows a, a, a land when it is so. And it's been true over and over in ways that you could look through history in this verse and go, you could watch that happen. You can watch it happen when, when, when that begins to lo- no longer be anything there, when it's be that place where, where just whatever it takes to bribe or get somebody into that, it becomes a horrendous place. Interesting enough, the, the word bribe can you know, refer to uh, you know, even that, but it even has the idea of just inviting uh, you know, into that. that some would say it's, it's, it could even be less than... Um, 
hey, you know, it's going to cost you $100 to make you, you know, get this contract through. It could be the place where you're just open to it, where, where you're open to that kind of support, and it's one of those places that becomes destructive. It ought not be so. It ought not be the way that it works. In a world that's governed by things in our world, it is sometimes that way, but it's one of those things that takes a land and upends it in, in horrendous ways. As much as things are wrong, wrong in our land right now here in America, thankfully this is not entirely true. I'm not going to say it's not anywhere true but not entirely. May God rescue us from, from such lawlessness that could, you know, that just consumes many other places around the globe right now, that to get anything done, it's bribes that just cause everything to move forward. Well, leaving that as just a statement of reality across the land, helping us to understand that. Verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Laying this out here, it says, oh, if you have someone who is flattering somebody, who is just speaking things, the idea of flattery is, you know, not, it's not even really true. Uh, you're just saying nice things about somebody. You're just, you know, overly doing that. He says, here's what you're doing. You're spreading a net for his feet. Interesting thought. Is he saying that if somebody is flattering you that they're looking to take advantage? Maybe. Uh, it, it could go that way. That sometimes flattery rolls that way. But the, the proverb is more generic than that. And it kind of has the idea of just understanding how dangerous flattery is. That flattery becomes one of those things that upends many a soul. That it becomes one of those places that flattery believed. It, it's a trap. It, it's a destruction. It's something that can so bring about just messes in people's lives. I think about it, I heard years ago, I think it was Alistair Begg who was sharing on this, and he talked about hearing it as a little boy, just someone who told it to him in a way that landed for him. And someone just told him, he said, you know, flattery is like perfume. Sniff it, don't swallow it. You know, flattery is like perfume. Sniff it, don't swallow it. And it's good pieces of advice that you would look at there and say, you know, that's really how it works. And, and again, if I can just give it to you as, as a principle that's there, can I ask you, so how do you handle flattery? How do you handle it uh, when somebody says nice things to you or about you? How are you going to handle it? Because handling it poorly so often leads to a trap. Believing our own press clippings, believing about what people say about us can become incredibly destructive, can become incredibly just, you know, just difficult. I think I shared it a couple weeks ago when we saw a similar proverb, and I was trying to find the quote, and I just can't remember where I stuck it. You know, it's one of those things where I get quotes out of books, and I stuff them, keep them in all kinds of places, but Charles Spurgeon was talking about this as far as a pastor, and he just talked about one of the things that he had to learn. He says, you know, when, when people come up and they begin to compliment you, he said, you know, there, there's just this little process that he would go through. You know, as people were like, oh, you're the best pastor I've ever met. You know, he in the back of his mind would say, Lord, Forgive them, because they, they know it's not true. <laughs> Forgive them for saying that. Lord, help me to, then he'd go and said, secondly, Lord, help me to be more the kind of person that they're complimenting. Let me grow into whatever it is that they've seen. And then, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for enjoying any part of this flattery that would only go wrong in my life. And he would just kind of have this little thing that he was just praying through all the, all the time. And I thought, I've thought long about that. It's definitely something I've worked into my own heart and life. But it's definitely a place that we ought to think through, because flattery, Flattery is, you, know, you might as well, you know, dig a hole in, in, in a road, spread a net over it, because it's like, you're going to fall. 
You're, you're going to fall into that trap. You're, that's, that's a trap that's ahead if it's not something you do well. And so he invites us to see just the danger of flattery and, the, and the, the space of being even rescued from that. It's a good piece of advice for all of us uh, to find ourselves just being led in a way that goes all together well. Well, you can flip the booklet over and go to verse 6 there. In a kind of similar nugget, uh, but just changing it up a little bit, he says, by transgression, an evil man is snared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. So by transgression, sin, by doing the wrong thing, uh, this place when you're there, that person who is evil, this, this evil person finds themselves trapped finds themselves caught into the snares that would be a part of that, kind of like what we were just talking about, that there's a, a trap when you find there. But, but sin does that. Sin causes us to, to, to find ourselves there, that it will go badly, that there's destruction in the midst of it, that, that God, you know, when He tells us, you know, not to sin, it's not just because He's, you know, trying to, you know, set some kind of, you know, restrictions on you that aren't good. Everything He tells us no for, it's destructive. It's like, I don't want you to do that because that'll hurt you. That'll, that'll, that'll bring pain and sorrow and suffering. You only need to believe that. But to sin would lead into that. On the other hand of it, those who do the right thing, the righteous, has this idea of sings and rejoices. Now, interesting proverb, again, to kind of take them as a side-by-side and say, okay, so here's a contrast. There's true. Uh, to do the right thing is joy. Oh, please get that. Uh, understand that to do the right thing really there is that there's a fullness of joy in doing right but probably here it has the idea of not just joy and singing but almost the kind of place that you know you recognize you know you don't fall into a trap it's kind of that place when you do the right thing you'll walk out of it and go oh, this is good. I, I could have fought, look at that could have destroyed my life could have destroyed what I am you know and almost this place of worship and joy of just thinking God to do the right thing it rescues me. It, it draws me away from those places. And, and there is something about that. There is something in our lives that would even be there, maybe even there tonight in your life, that you'd be able to say, God, it's so good. It's so good to be able to do, walk in your ways and then recognize the number of things that could have so easily been my undoing, so easily have been that. So many ways can do that. Sometimes you'll just see it. You'll see things that could have just trapped you in your past. Sometimes you'll see it by seeing it in somebody else. Sometimes you'll see somebody that maybe you grew up with, somebody that was in your neighborhood, and, and they go down an entirely different path. They go down an entirely different path that brings their destruction, and there's a place that you should be able to go, God, thank you. <laughs> thank you for righteousness. Thank you for, for rescuing me from, from what that could have done to me. Had I gone down the same road, it would have been the same destruction. And, and there's just a joy. There's a joy of saying, if we could see it, if we could see it, righteousness would not just be like, well, that's good. It's good to do the right thing. God says so and ought to do it. But it's like, oh, it's so freeing. It's so rescuing. So one of those places that keeps us from those things that would destroy uh, our soul. And so may God make it so in us uh, that you would be one that seeks to do the right thing and be rescued and be on the other side of it in a place that you'd be like, yes, thank you, God, for rescuing me. Thank you for keeping my life from those places that could have so easily upended my soul. Well, keep going. Uh, verse 7, the righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. So that person who is right, who is doing the right things by God, living in the right way, says they have compassion. 
uh, they, they look upon those, they see the poor, they see the things that are there, they, they, they see the, the places that are there that would move so often uh, into spaces, and, and just honestly, it is true. Uh, it's true in lives. I can tell you it's true in history. You, you probably know. You, you look at most of the, uh, of the, you know, some of the, of the good things that have been poured out into our world, everything from hospitals uh, to, you know, just watching things happen so often as believers, as believers who have stepped into these spaces and, and seen pain and seen sorrow and seen suffering, and it's an amazing reality. But he just simply says the wicked, the one who is not righteous, says he doesn't even understand it. I mean, it, it doesn't compute. It, it isn't there that that place of righteousness that gives us a compassion uh, upon all mankind is not true for the wicked. And it's not that they just look at it and say, no, they, it's just they can't even process it because of not doing it that way. May God cause you to be one. May God cause us to be more uh, those who would do right and see and have compassion on, on those around us and have a heart for those who are hurting. And may we be those who walk in that. All right. Well, verse 8 scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. Scoffers. Well, this really almost amps it up. I think you probably would understand. So a scoffer is not somebody who is just wicked. It is wicked. Someone who is doing the wrong thing. But not only are they doing the wrong thing, it's as if they, with an arrogant kind of an attitude that mock at, at, at things that are right. Like, oh, I can't even believe you guys would even try that. Can't, can't even believe, you know, that you're doing whatever that is that's righteous. He says scoffers, when they, they, they are this, when they reject, you know, not only God's ways, but they mock at it, laugh at it, make light of it. He says, it's as if you could look at that and it's as if they set a city aflame. You just look and think, okay, that is a spark that brings pain. Uh, and, and it brings pain to everybody around them. It brings destruction to everybody around them. It is just simply so. On the other side of that, the, the wise, those who are not rejecting God, wise being those who recognize there is a God, His ways are right, to seek to live the, in those ways and, and walk in all those. He says, instead of it being that which sets a city aflame, it's as if they turn away wrath. Uh, they become those who begin to see the other side of this go. And, and what an incredible picture that is. What an incredible picture it is uh, to, to be those and, and, and to be on that side of it. It probably makes perfect sense, but can I just take a moment and just invite you? Hey, I, I long for you to be on the right side of this. You know, not living in between. Uh, you know, even a Christian can sometimes get into the place of scoffing in and, and those places, and it only brings destruction. But to be in this place of those who are saying, God, I believe you, I believe your ways, I believe the right, it becomes a place that can bring healing. I found myself thinking when Jesus shares this, and he talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, giving the Beatitudes, giving these uh, kind of just places that would mark uh, the lives of his followers. I love the Beatitudes. I think in many ways they give a picture of the heart of a real believer and what it looks like. And there's eight of them, but the seventh, and I really believe they almost, if you've ever gone through the Beatitudes with us, kind of move in a growing nature that, you know, that you begin with this kind of humble heart before God, being poor in spirit, but the more you grow in his ways, your life begins to become a blessing. And in the seventh Beatitude, Jesus just said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. It's as if you could look at them and say, hey, they bring peace. Uh, they bring peace. 
first and foremost with, the, with the, the greatest peace that could ever be there, the gospel, that we get to bring in the peace of, of God, that we get to be those with the, the, the measure that brings in a, a saving from wrath, that gets to deliver people from, from, from their destruction. It's a great space, but it often moves into very practical ways as well that to really be one who is, who is doing the right thing, not only are you, are you humbled before God and growing in his ways, you become one that is wise and it's as if, you know, or is a blessing that turns away people from wrath, from, from destruction, from their soul being destroyed, but also just one who brings about, you know, just healing in the midst of it. May God make you and I such people. May we be those who are uh, presence in the midst of, our church, our family, our friends, that we're not, we're not a spark that sets along a flame. That's like, okay, yeah, you just, you cause little waves everywhere you go to be one that would say no, to bring about a blessing, to bring about those who would turn and, and bring away good spaces. That would be an altogether good place. It's an invitation, again, to be that kind of person and, and so much so that we would need it. May God help us to be it. All right. Well, as we long for that, turn the page. Verse 9. If a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. So now this wise person, we are to be peacemakers. We are to be those that the previous verse just talked about, that we make a difference uh, wherever we go. But he says, if you're going to contend with somebody who's totally given over to folly, like they reject God, they reject his ways, they reject his word. He says, whether they rage or they laugh, there's no peace. It's as if no matter how they respond, it's not going to go well for us. And it is, again, a simple truth. You know, there is a space where we get to be peacemakers, where we get to be those who bring in the gospel, and we get to bring in those who bring in hope. But there is a space also uh, where you, you look at this and say, That's not a, it's a wasted conversation. It's a wasted conversation. Uh, they, they reject God. They reject everything about him. Nothing I say is going to be helpful. Jesus would say it this way when he talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and they turn and tear you to pieces. He says, there's a, there's, there, there are places that go, that's a, that's a wasted argument. You know, that, there's no point in even kind of, because they totally reject everything that's there to kind of even dive into this. And not only would it be rejected, not only are they not going to want to listen to my, uh, you know, exegesis of a, of, a, of a proverb to him, like, hey, there's this really cool proverb. It's like, not only is it going to go badly, it'll, you know, they're going to reject God's word. Uh, they're going to, it's going to turn and go badly. And so there is a place of just recognizing this. And, and again, it's a good piece of wisdom. Uh, some of you uh, have figured this out too. You, you've looked at it, you have family members, you have a friend, it's like, you know what, we, we have. I've sat there for hours and we've argued and argued and argued and argued. And uh, sometimes you get to the place of saying, you know what, there's, there's no more good argument. It's not, it's not an argument. To, you, know, to, you, know, you kind of look at that and say, I'm not even gonna enter into it. You know, because they're, they're, they in this moment have no ability uh, to dialogue over right and wrong, over morality in some of the spaces. There is a place of just recognizing that. And so he just tells us, hey, don't, don't do it. Don't contend with that foolish man because no matter which way it goes, whether they get angry or they laugh at you, 
it's, it's, it, there's no peace. It, it's not going to be there. You're not going to be able to bring it in there. And so there is a place of just making those, those choices, and it's a good place to go. And again, just good wisdom. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody that you're needing to make this decision. Maybe there's a place in, in, in your world, it's like, and, and somehow you've believed, well, you know, I ought, I ought to always argue with people. I ought to always keep presenting truth. No, there are spaces to say, you know what, God, I, you know, I'm going to wait. Wait till they're, till they're ready to hear. Uh, this is not a good space. It's only going to cause problems. Good piece of wisdom. May God grow us in that and rescue us from uh, contending in folly. All right. Verse 10. The bloodthirsty hate the blameless, but the upright seek his well-being. So the bloodthirsty, that's a pretty interesting word. It has the idea of somebody who is so vicious, even angry, the kind of thing that would just be seeking almost, uh, you know, to, 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 to argue and even injure in the midst of it. It speaks of somebody who is so agitated in many ways that it would begin to flow out into everything they are. It says when somebody's like that, they become somebody that, that hate the blameless. They hate it. We just pause there and come back to a description that we've given over the last few weeks. Blameless is this beautiful word uh, in, in the Bible that just worth your making sure you understand. Blamelessness doesn't speak about perfection, and that's a good thing because you're not perfect. Neither am I. Blamelessness speaks about somebody who has dealt with their sin who has recognized they've done the wrong thing when they've done it, they've repented, they've asked for forgiveness. Uh, if there's something that uh, needs to be, you know, an apology made to somebody or, or done that, they, they've done that. So that in the idea of blamelessness is there's just, there's nothing left to do. There's, there's no account that's kind of left out of that. It's as if you're looking at somebody who is trying to do the right thing who is saying, hey, you know, if I've done the wrong thing, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to ask your forgiveness. If I, if I, you know, walk in those things, it's a beautiful picture that should describe you and I this evening, to, to be those that are there. And I know when we were here in Proverbs last week, we kind of ended just saying, longing that we would be walking in such blamelessness. Well, holding that definition, so blameless, not perfect, but it is somebody who is turning away from sin, repenting when they do the wrong thing, trying to get things wrong, right that are, that are wrong, living this life that you'd be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, as much as it concerns me, <laughs> you know, as much as it concerns me, I'm trying to be at peace with everybody. As much as, you know, whatever it is for me to do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that to make it right. He says, when somebody lives that way, to the bloodthirsty person, it makes them angry. It makes them angry. It, it only makes it worse. Jesus would talk about this in, in, in the Gospel of John where he talks about how that, you know, darkness hates the light. You know, that there's, when, when somebody's living in darkness, to have somebody, you know, living in light next to them, it, it is agitating. It is frustrating. And, and it's as if it almost just exposes it, that they both move away from it and find themselves in that space. On the other side of it, for the upright, the one who's trying to do the right thing, when they look at somebody who is you know, being blameless or trying to get blameless, it's as if, man, I just want to encourage that. I just, I, I love seeing that. I, I love seeing somebody trying and, and, and turning. It's an entirely different space. It's a good place for us to pause and again just say, it's just simply true. Maybe helpful. Maybe helpful for you right now. Maybe there's that place in your life right now that you're trying to live a blameless life. And it's a funny thing. It will agitate people. 
there are some people that just because you're trying to do the right thing, it will make them irritated and angry and frustrated. It'll make them, you know, grieved and, and angry over all that that is. And some, sometimes it's just surprising. It's just surprising that it's so. I remember very early in my Christian life it being that way and uh, you know, God working in my life, and I remember, I think I've shared with some of you guys in the past, you know, my sister uh, ha, ha, was not yet a believer, and one time, it was on my birthday, my birthday, she wrote this letter out and gave it to me and told me to read it later, and it was like, oh, that's gonna be cool, you know, it's like my sister's writing me a letter for my birthday, so I'm kind of thinking this is gonna be one of those nice little, you know, love you, brother, you know, you're so cool, I mean, I, I, you know, it's just what you're, it's a birthday. I remember getting home and reading it, and instead it was, you know, why are you always pushing your Christianity on me? You know, you're always making me feel bad. I mean, you know, you're always pushing your Jesus on us. And I'm like, I don't even know what I did. I mean, it was like one of those places that I, 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 I mean, yes, I would share the gospel every now and then. But honestly, I wasn't obnoxious. And I remember just like, oh, thank you. Happy birthday. That's great, you know. Um, but she was actually under great conviction. And she ended up turning to Christ pretty soon after that. And she, I remember just telling me, it's like, man, just to be around you. I mean, you didn't have to say anything. You didn't have to say anything, but just to be around you, it just irritated me. It was as if you were just pouring salt on, on a wound every time I was in your presence. That's true. And when someone's that space, it's just that place. And, and again, maybe that's helpful. You know, sometimes just knowing that, because it, it was like, I don't even know what, what's happening. Why is this person at work? Why are they getting so frustrated? It, it happens that way when somebody is, you know, in that place of doing poorly, that someone who's blameless, they just irritate them. It just drives them crazy. But now we should be on the other side of that. We should be the kind of person who actually really enjoys seeing somebody try. And again, it should be that place. I mean, hopefully we get to that place and are in that space. It's like, I, I like nothing more than to see somebody turning around and doing the right thing. I mean, they're, they're trying to fix their life. They're trying to turn away from the bad choices they were making. And I love that. It's like, I want to see more of that. Like, yes, you know, and how can I help you? How can I encourage you? Instead of it being an irritant, it's, it's almost a draw. It's almost like when you see that in Christ, when, you're, when, when someone's, you know, trying, like, oh, I'm trying to fix my marriage, and boy, I've made a mess of things. If your heart is right, instead of that being irritating, it's as if someone just put a magnet, and you're like, oh, how can I pray for you, and how do I get to know you? And, you know, it's just a, it's a place that should be altogether different, and in a place, again, that we want to be. Uh, that kind of person. And again, a statement of fact and a statement of reality that would help us to understand exactly what that looks like. All right. Well, let's keep going. Switching gears, kind of the way Proverbs does. Hope your brain can track with that. Again, it's kind of like he's talked about hit one thing and then we move to a different thing. That's just kind of the way Proverbs works, but it's good. We come to verse 11. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. A fool uh, somebody who rejects God, rejects his ways, that's the idea of a fool, says just vents everything, vents everything that's there, just says everything that comes to their mind, vents all their feelings. In contrast, he says a wise man, uh, someone who's going to walk in God's ways, holds them back. What a really good proverb. Um, this one is worth the whole chapter. If, if, if it's not one that you fully understand, can I just make sure I say it as clear as I can? Because our world is saying something different. Our world has a message that is so opposite this, and sometimes, 
there are people that say that's Christianity. Sometimes that they're saying that's what God would want. And so our world would say, hey, you should just say everything you think. I mean, there ought to be a vulnerability, there ought to be a space, uh, you know, if, if you hold back, you know, who you are, it, it's going to, you know, kind of create some kind of psychological trauma in you, and, and so what you just need to do is you just say everything that comes to your mind. I just want you, and if, if it's there, you just, you just speak it, and, and that's genuineness, they'll tell us, that's a, a, a space of, of they'll, they'll say it's an emotionally you know, kind of balanced space. And I just want to tell you, if you don't, that is not true. That is not true. That is folly. That is folly. Your flesh is, is not to be so indulged, to, to let yourself just say everything that comes to your mind. It would be a horrendous thing uh, that we just let every little thing that cross. It should not happen. He's just telling us, no, that, if you do that, if you just, hey, whatever you feel, you just speak? He says, that's a bad thing. That's folly. I like the way James tells it to us in the book of James, where he tells us, you know, that we are to be, you know, quick to hear, you know, quick to listen, and slow to speak. You know, it's like, nope, we don't, we don't just say everything that comes to our mind. Like, we think it through a little bit and, and, and walk through it. And I love the way the Bible calls us to this. In Colossians, it would say it this way. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. He says, so, you let your, so always let your, your, your speech, when you're going to talk, be gracious. Make sure it's gracious. Make sure that grace is flowing, that there's kindness, understanding, patience, gentleness, you know, the way it is. Seasoned with salt. Salt is a picture that's used probably throughout the whole Bible as a picture of the gospel, uh, as, as a place is there. And it's one of those places that we're always aware Hey, you know what? I don't want to ever say anything that would kind of interfere uh, with somebody coming into Christ. You know, I mean, yeah, I'm going to season my language. I'm going to say what I'm going to say because I don't want anybody to hear it wrongly because I want to know how to answer each one. It says, let my speech always be this way. In Ephesians, it would say it similarly. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Again, just good advice. It says, don't let it happen. So it's inside you there. Like you, you're thinking about saying something, but it's corrupt. It's unkind. It's cruel. It's not gracious. Don't let it out. Don't let it out. It says, I want you to just hold that back. You know, don't say those kinds of things. Only let what's coming out, if it's good, if it's necessary, if it's edifying, and it's going to impart grace. It's like, okay, is it, yeah, is it, is it good? Is it edifying? Is it gracious? Like, then, yeah, I could speak that. I think about it, I've seen, you know, that put into to different memes in different places, and many of you guys have seen it as well, where someone have taken even the word think and kind of just said, hey, you know, before you speak, like before you speak, you should say, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? All right, we would say gracious. Is it necessary? Is it kind? Like, okay, those are things that should govern what I'm going to say. It should be in a place that I should be able to think, okay, is this, is this a good thing to say? Is this going to be helpful? I mean, is this something that would be good for them, or is it, is it my own heart? Is it, is it going to be someplace that's pride or anger or, you know, criticalness or whatever it is? Like, I, I ought not to let that just flow out of my life. I need to be somebody who, who when I speak, it goes a very different way. 
Now, in one sense, that would seem to me, I mean, I'm just being honest, it would seem to me like, well, of course we would understand that, but I want to one more time tell you, our world is saying something different. And sometimes it's even, again, said by well-meaning people who, you know, will say, hey, you know, you just, you need to, and it's a lack of genuineness, or it's, again, it's going to be, you know, bad for you if you, you know, don't just let it all out. I mean, just, you know, let everything out that's in there. And I'm just telling you, that's not so. Uh, God, give us grace to be those. It's like, wow. You know, there's so many things I don't say. You know, like there's so many. I mean, it ought to be that way. It ought to be that you could leave a conversation and go, I'm so glad I didn't say that. You know, I was thinking about saying something and I did not need to say that. You know, it would have only been condemning. It would have only been, you know, critical or prideful. And there ought to be spaces that you hold those things back and you recognize, you know, hey, that's not a good thing to let out of my heart. You know, Jesus talked you know, that out of the heart flow all these, you know, wicked things, whether it be, you know, covetousness, whatever it is, and those are things that we restrain, and, and, and the righteous thing is to be that kind of person that says, no, nope, I hold them back. So again, all by itself, just a good proverb, if you don't have this one kind of down, it would be really, really helpful because your world is going to convince you otherwise, and I, again, like I've heard really good people say it, it's not true. Hold back. Wise man holds it back. If only a fool says everything they're thinking. That's what the Bible says. Only a fool lets everything come out of their mouth that crosses their brain. That's a dumb way to live. And it's destructive. It's destructive. It's ignoring God. It's ignoring His ways. And God is simply calling you and I away from that. All right. Well, good one. Again, if nothing else lands this evening, may that one land and rescue us from such folly. All right. Verse 12. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. So here's this ruler, whether again it be a government ruler or a business ruler, if he begins to listen and allow deception to be there, allow lies to be there, it becomes something that destroys the entire environment. Dave Guzik in his commentary on it says it this way. He said, when deception is rewarded, then telling the truth is discouraged. The atmosphere around the ruler and his servants become poisonous and incompetent. And again, it's just one of these things like, that's true. True in a government, true in a business. And again, for some of you, you're like, I know what that looks like. I know what that looks like. When all of a sudden a leader will be, you know, lies, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter anymore, doesn't matter what's true anymore, just tell me what I want to hear, or people are, and, and, and it creates just destruction in the midst of it. It's a terrible place that should be there. And we ought to be those who, who aren't there, that have no affinity or no, you know, comfortability around that. You know, I think about it, it's a different maybe a measure, but for whatever reason, it was in my brain when I was reading this one through this week. You know, I think about it being true in government. I think about it being true in business. I think about it being true in families. And I can remember having this conversation with my kids when they were growing up. Some of you probably had the same conversation that simply said, you know, don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. I mean, I can handle a lot of things. I would much rather deal with things that you've done wrong. Uh, I'd much rather, you know, lie to me. And that destroys everything lie to me, and, and that un- unearths all of our a- ability to communicate, and it will not be something I will tolerate. 
It's not something I'm okay uh, with that. It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, they just lied. You know, it, it, it destroys. It destroys communication. It destroys the ability to trust. It destroys a hundred things, and it should never be indulged. Not in a government, not in a business, not in a family. We should not be okay with that because lies are destructive. Our, 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 the devil is the father of lies, and it is, brings in such incredible destruction. May we not be those who pay attention to it. All right. Verse 13. The poor man and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to both to the eyes of both. So we're looking at the poor man, those who have the smallest, and we think almost in the far end of things that are there, one who is oppressing and controlling and maybe, you know, powerful, maybe wealthy, but they have something in common. They have something in common, and that is God gives light to both of them. God gives light to both of them. There's probably a couple elements of truth here. Some of it is just the nature of our world, that we can look there and say, our God is the God who has created all. And he is the one that is, in that sense, even being patient with all in that. Again, I think about in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus just said it this way. He says, I say to you, love your enemies, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He says, here's our God, and he is treating right now with a, with a, with a, a general grace, with a kindness that is you know, allowing you know, people who are in wicked lives, you know, still, there's a kindness, there's a, there's a space that are there. He is still the God who has you know, given them the ability uh, to have life, and that's true. In the midst of this, there's still probably even a gospel nugget there that you know, he gives light to the eyes. And some would talk about even from the idea of Romans and seeking to draw. It's a fascinating thing. I'll just give it to a nugget for anybody that wants to pursue that further. Uh, but it is true. God is the God who, who loves the world, the rich and the poor, and he is at work in both sides of that. All right. Verse 14 touches on one that we've already seen this evening a little bit. He says, The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. So the king who's going to do the right thing, much like we saw in verse 2, much like we saw about the one who's not going to be bribed, if he's going to deal with people, not on the basis of being bribed or doing what's wrong, he says that's going to be something that brings truth. His throne will be established. And again, just reiterating what we've already seen a couple times tonight, just calling us to be those people that say, hey, it's not about you know, what I get out of it. Money shouldn't be the thing that, that makes the decisions. It ought to be God. All right. Verse 15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline, godly discipline for, for, for that as parents, the rod and the rebuke that he says, he says that, that gives wisdom. That's a good, good thing to, to walk in that. But a child who is left or kind of left to himself would be one way of saying it, who ha, is not being disciplined at home, it is only going to bring shame. Much that's in this, and again, just one of those places that pause and say, yeah, this is God's standard for things. Uh, discipline, discipline in a home, disciplining children, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's godly. It, it's a good thing. It's a righteous thing. Our world is saying something different right now. Our world, again, is telling us, well, you know, kids just need to be kids, and, you know, they should do so without restraint, and, and you shouldn't, you know, you don't want to create a negative atmosphere by being corrective, and it's just so not true. It doesn't work. Watch a child who is undisciplined. It will go bad for them every time. 
every time. Truth has been proved out so many times. We could look at it, and for many of us, we'd be able to say that, that, you know, that it shouldn't be that way. So for parents here, grandparents, again, he's inviting us to say, hey, we get it. Discipline's right. We ought to be those who, uh, you know, discipline and, and are a part of that. Then they just give you a nugget to chew on uh, that uh, the answer is not, it, it's kind of just one that's interesting. So rod and rebuke give wisdom, true. So the contrast to this is the child that's left alone, and he says it's going to bring shame to the mother. And it's just one of those interesting things like, hmm, I wonder why he said that. I wonder why he said that. Um, why not the mother and the father? Uh, why just the mother? Um, I mean, in, in some ways, the, the father is, you know, by, by God's design, is meant to be, you know, a strong place of that discipline. I mean, God calls it, you know, to, there in the New Testament, fathers, discipline your children, bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So it's an interesting thing to, to say to of the moms. Lots of ideas, different commentators would say different things. Some would say it's just the compassion that God has made it so that moms are the ones that are there, part of the curse that throws out of Genesis 13, the brokenness of there. Others would say, well, you know, sometimes it's, you know, the compassion that would be in some moms that undoes discipline. Probably not always true, uh, but it is a space that for some is like, oh, you know, don't, you know, don't do that. It's like, no, no, it needs to be done. There, there needs to be discipline. Interesting things to think through, but in the end, it will always prove true that, that you know, to have a place of no discipline, it brings shame. May God rescue from that. All right. Let's try to do two more. Uh, the, this, verse 17 is going to come back to the same subject. So let me just go to verse 16. Then we'll come back one more time and, and end in verse 17. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increases. But the righteousness will see their fall. So, so you look at this and you think, okay, when, when there's lots of people that are sinning and there's more that walk in that, uh, it's just kind of an interesting thing. It says, of course, transgression increases shouldn't be a hard thing to, to even comprehend, but sometimes it's just, we just need to hear it. Like, the more that there's people that are walking in wickedness, the more that there's people that are rebelling against God, it's going to create more and more problems. It's going to create more. In fact, it even uses the word multiplied in there, which is an interesting way that almost seems to, apply, to, to move across it, that it's not like an equal thing. Like, okay, so we have two sinners, and now it's twice as bad. It's not it's like sometimes it just, you know, it seems to be in the multiply. It begins to move in spaces that, that bring about a destruction and transgression increases. But, he just simply says, the righteous, those who are seeking to do the right thing, we're going to see the end of this. It's not always going to be so. We know how this story ends. We know where this world ends. We know there's going to be a world in which righteousness dwells, that we look upon the world that's being just kind of steeped in wickedness, and we know it is not going to work well for that. That's not going to continue going on forever. Your, your wickedness is going to be checked. Transgressions are going to come through, and there is a space of just knowing that. Well, we go to verse 17, and it goes back to this idea of correction, which we just talked about in verse 15. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. So now he just speaks very clearly to the parent, to the one who's there. Do this, like correct them, discipline them, be the one that does that. He says, and, and you will, and and that will give, and he'll give you rest. Like that'll be a place that will bring joy into your own heart. But he'll give delight to your soul. He'll give delight to to who it, you, you are in the midst of this. And there is just an invitation one more time, to embrace God's ways and, and to be one that would bring about that joy uh, that would be there. One more time, just speaking to the parents that, that are there. 
That said, I want to end and just kind of turn this around and say, here's the, you know, the amazing thing. Physical parents fail. Our, earthly, our heavenly father does not. It talks about it in the book of Hebrews that uh, our God is a God who disciplines all of his children. And he says it's actually a mark of, of what it is to be a child of God. He says there is no Christian. There is no child of God that is not getting disciplined by God. If, you, if, you, if there is no discipline, then you're not his child. He's not there because God corrects us. God is one out of love. He will, you know, check our lives, remind us when we're doing the wrong thing, help us kind of turn to the right. He is doing this well. And yet there is this invitation that we want to be those who respond to that. And there's a picture here of just being one of, of this, this rest and this delight that would be true, you know, in our lives, but just this pleasure even to God, you know, to, to be the one that would bring a delight to his heart you know, being the one that would be so responsive, to be the kind of person that said, God, I want to be that one, uh, that child of yours who is a delight, uh, who, who brings a delight to your soul in the midst of that. And so maybe this evening there's been something that's there. Maybe there's a place where God has checked you or showed you something that's wrong that's in your life. Maybe, again, you're the person that gives you know, vent to all your feelings or uh, something that's happening in the midst of it, and God has just kind of said, hmm, I'd like to see that change like to see that change. How good it would be for you to be that person that says, God, I, I want to receive correction. I, I want to be a blameless person. I want to be a person who, 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 who sees their, what they do wrong and seeks to turn and do right and to be someone that says, God, I want to bring pleasure to you. I want to bring rest. I want to bring a place where you would find pleasure in seeing me turn. May you be invited to be such a person this evening. May there be a space that God would so rescue us in that. So if you haven't already done so, you can close your Bibles, little booklets that we have open, and let's just go before him and ask for that. And just go before him and ask that he would cause us to be those who are heeding his gracious and wonderful correction and be the ones that he is bringing into good life for him. Let's ask him for that right now. Father, we come right now. I think about this evening and being able to just to bring this before you recognizing you as a God who cares about us, who's at work in our lives. And I think about it this way, that you are a God who disciplines all of your children. That's your promise. That's exactly what you say you do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you'd be the one that would seek to turn us back to righteousness, to blamelessness. May you work so even now that where we need to be corrected, we would be corrected. Lord, for our good because your ways are right your ways are true if we would walk in righteous ways we would be able to be those that you said earlier in the chapter we'd sing and rejoice both because of just the joy of doing right but also just the rescue it brings through so many spaces in life help it to be so but God also help it to be so that we bring pleasure and joy to you our heavenly father would you turn us from those things that grieve you, from those things that, that grieve just the Spirit in our lives? Would you bring us to righteousness and, and joy, both in you and to you even? God, in your faithfulness, draw us after that tonight. Thank you for your good work in that, but I simply ask for it, for me and for each of us here. In Jesus' name, amen.